Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora. Wall Street halts its winning streak as small caps advance. Tencent profits miss analyst estimates as finance costs climb. And six of the world's biggest banks are fined for rigging the foreign exchange market. This morning on Money for Nothing, guest host Peter Lewis and I will discuss all of these topics with Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. And then Ernie Dias of Web Presence in China will join us to analyze Tencent's earnings. And finally, we'll have a look at whether early stage investment Investments can be considered an asset class. We'll ask Titus Mikalski of Fresco Capital and Ian Reid, the president of Thai Hong Kong. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. Lots to discuss this morning. Many, many things going on. Yeah, currency in turmoil, you know, turmoil, I should say, in currency markets and uh, big banks sort of creating that turmoil. Yep, and banks being fined as well for for their role in, you know, um, FX rate rigging. Exactly. All right. Well, so uh, before we discuss all of that, let's have a look at today's top stories. Wall Street's five-day record-breaking run has ended after huge fines for rigging the foreign exchange market sent the shares of leading U.S. banks tumbling and also as small caps advanced. The Dow closed nearly three points lower at 17,612. The S&P 500 fell just over a point to 2,038, while the Nasdaq composite added a third of a percent to end at 4,675. Now, six of the world's biggest banks have been fined 4.3 billion U.S. dollars by regulators in the UK, US and Switzerland. This includes HSBC, the Royal Bank of Scotland, UBS, JP Morgan Chase and Citibank, who were all found guilty of rigging key foreign exchange benchmarks last year. Bloomberg's Susie Ring reports. Uh, we started the day with fines from the UK Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, that was against five banks for about $1.7 billion. Uh, and at the same time, UBS was also fined by the Swiss authorities, uh, about $139 million. Um, and the CFTC, very quickly as well, $1.4 billion for the same five banks as the UK. Um, and then just a couple of hours ago, we've had the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency come out with another $950 million. So uh, the banks collectively have taken a $4.3 billion hit today, um, which is you know, kind of as expected, um, but a lot for one day. Now, Barclays was a pretty interesting case. They were going to settle, but pulled out at the last minute. Um, And this relates apparently to the fact that they're also in discussions with New York's Department of Financial Services. Uh, We we don't know the nature of that at the moment, but we know that the uh, Department of Financial Services is known to be very tough, uh, often likes to go alone as well. The the strange thing about this scenario was, though, that Barclays obviously went first in the LIBOR settlements and actually really suffered as a result of it. Uh, So you would think that it would be in Barclays' interest this time around to be in the group. it's a lo- we're at a loss to understand why they didn't participate in today's settlement. The wrongdoing started in 2008 and was still going on last October, well, after banks were fined for the last rigging scandal, LIBOR. And there could be worse worse to come. UK and US authorities have launched criminal probes into the scandal, which could lead to much bigger fines and even convictions. Michael Bow, a partner at Cassowitz, Benson, Torres and Freeman, thinks that the fines alone will not change, change the bad behavior of banks. 
We've had insider trading cases. We've had LIBOR cases. We've had the mortgage cases. Um, and the real question is going to be, um, until senior people are prosecuted, and if the, only, if the only issue is banks having to pay large sums of money, and we've seen it, that the sums of money have become bigger and bigger as criminal prosecutions have been brought into the equation and the threat of losing their banking charter. But still, that's only been used to increase the amount of money they have to pay. And, and if it's not more than they made um, and people don't go to jail, there's a real question about whether this will ever change behavior, especially at sort of the, this, le this operational level where this stuff I, I think was was rampant, um, but not but arguably not caught. So, Peter, I'd love to know where you come out on this. You know, now that all of these fines have been paid and settled, have we seen an end? I don't think we have. We still have a criminal investigation going on. The U.S. Justice Department is, is continuing its investigation. There are other regulators around the world, including here in Hong Kong, who are also continuing their investigations. And, and so far, you know, since the financial crisis, there's been something like $100 billion of fines imposed on banks globally. And yet, we still have this going on, and this was after the LIBOR scandal, so for sure the people involved in the FX rate risking must have known that this was illegal. They saw it all you know, in, in LIBOR, but yet it still carries on, and it does make you wonder what have we got to do to, um, to stop this happening, and, and it's important that we do stop it happening, because there are many people around the world who are convinced that markets are rigged and are fixed and are, you know, are biased against them, and when they see this type of thing happening, it only um, you know, makes them think even more that these markets are not free and not fair. Yes, it goes just to confirm confirm their suspicions. Let's bring in uh, Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. Good morning, Puru. Good morning, Renita. So, Puru, you know, as Peter's saying, we've seen this with LIBOR. We've seen something like this in 2008 with the mortgage fraud. Uh, we seem to be seeing this kind of behavior on Wall Street going back into sort of several years. I mean, you look at, you know, trading scandals and Kitta Peabody and you know, is it so hard to have a button-down compliance environment? Well, it's very difficult. When you've got large sums of money involved, uh, human nature tends to become greedy and people do things they shouldn't do. So I think this is going to just go on and as long as the financial markets are still alive. And, and Peru, where then is the role of compliance departments and risk management departments who are supposed to be there to make sure that people's greed don't get the better of them and they don't break the law? It sounds like there's really a systematic failure of compliance and risk management and senior management in some of these firms. Well, absolutely. But if you look at the size of some of these firms, Peter, and especially, you know, the big banks where you've got so many different departments and divisions and traders trading all sorts of things, it is very difficult for maybe a group of people to sit down and really work out what is going on, especially if the traders are being clever. It's very difficult. And I think compliance is good. Obviously, without that, you would have total mayhem, but I don't think it's foolproof. Now, you know, in this particular case, there were a number of transcripts that were uncovered uh, showing the senior employees at all of these various banks talking to each other, double teaming, so to speak. Uh, this obviously suggested there was a lot of con collusion going on. Is that true, Puru? Well, I don't really know this particular case, but if, you know, if you have a big fraud going on somewhere, usually it's more than one person involved. You know, in a big company, you can't have one person getting away with it.
And, and the, the chat room transcripts show that banks were actually colluding with each other to try and manipulate the fixing and deliberately, um, you know, disadvantage their clients, you know, force stops that clients had in the, in the markets to be taken out at disadvantageous levels. I mean, the, these transcripts are, are, are pretty damning. What, what do we do to, you know, in particular, make sure that senior management in these banks are, are accountable and, you know, when this type of thing goes on, um, you know, they are pulled over the coals. I mean, you've got to have tougher penalties. I believe you've got to slap them with massive fines financially and also maybe some prison time uh, that would set a good standard and deter others from doing the same. Yeah, I think the prison time is key because, um, as, as one of the analysts was saying as well, you know, fines are all fine and well, but uh, the truth of the matter is if they do not exceed the amount you earn and if they're not sort of lumped in with prison time, how are they going to have any effect? That's right. right. I mean, if you're making hundreds of millions of dollars, you don't really mind paying 10 million now and again. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. I I wish I were there. Why am I not there? Okay. Uh, You know, speaking of compliance, guys, uh, (laughs) do you think, Peter, has technology enabled this type of behavior? Well, you know, the markets have become very, very sophisticated. um, And the FX markets are OTC markets. So in other words, you know, if, if one person buys a currency, the bank is on the other side of that trade and has you know, has taken on the risk of that trade. And therefore, there is always temptations in order to try and um, sort of move the you know, markets in a, in a way that's favorable to those um, sort of positions. So it is very important that we use the technology as well in the, in the right way. And, and, you know, banks have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in technology now to try and root out this thing. They monitor chat rooms very carefully. They monitor emails um, very carefully. But at the end of the day, there still has to be a will amongst the senior management that they are actively going to look into this um, and, and stamp it out. All the technology in the world won't help unless the senior management really feel accountable about this. And if they even say we're, we're prepared to root this out to the extent that it will hit our profitability, we would rather have um, you know, uh, um, you know, a, a business that's compliant with the rules and regulations rather than uh, going for profits all the time. Okay, Peter, since we are on the topic of currencies, of course, we've seen a lot of turmoil in currency markets. Can you bring us up to date on that? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, well, first of all, the yen. I mean, the yen um, has moved from 108 to 116 in just eight days. It hit 116 yesterday. In emerging markets, we've got a lot of turmoil going on in, in the currency markets. I mean, the Russian ruble has now fallen 25% against the dollar in the, the past four months. The Ukrainian uh, currency is crumbling and has just hit a new um, record low and there's a real danger there that it may have to default on some of its sovereign debt and, and restructure. And we're seeing that as well in, in other emerging markets, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Turkey, all having very pronounced currency weaknesses and starting to do damage to their real um, economies because there's capital outflows going on in some of those countries now. Puru, what do you make of this? Well, we think that the US dollar is going to rally for maybe another three, four years at the very minimum. Uh, I think the dollar has bottomed out and the emerging markets currencies are going to continue to weaken. I also believe that the euro is going to weaken. I think the yen is going to weaken. So I think the trend in the US dollar is up for now. And that's because the QE has ended in America. The American economy is healing. The housing market is rebounding. If you look at overseas, elsewhere, I mean, Europe 
is in a mess. The ECB started buying assets. The BOJ is buying bonds. So you've got easing going on in other parts of the world, and you really don't have a choice. So the dollar, in my view, is going to go strong, and that's going to hurt the emerging currencies other major currencies as well as commodities and precious metals. And so, what's this going to do for the economies of, of some, particularly some of the emerging markets? They're, they're not in great shape to withstand a, a dollar that's going to you know, appreciate for the next three or four years, if, you, if your prediction is right. I mean, I agree with you. I think the emerging markets are going to struggle. Uh, if you recall in the last decade, Peter, from 2001 to 2011, the developed world did very badly and the emerging world did very well. The emerging countries did very well. Commodities did very well. Foreign currencies did very well. Precious metals commodities did very well. And the US dollar went down and the developed world went down. In 2001-11, April, the trend reversed. So the developed world bottomed out, the dollar bottomed out, and commodities and emerging markets topped and precious metals topped. And I think this trend will continue for another four or five years. So I think if you've got to invest, you've got to look at the developed world, i.e. Europe, U.S., and Japan and buy the dollar. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. My pleasure. Quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up one tenth of a percent to seventeen thousand two hundred and ten. Australia's ASX is down three tenths of a percent to five thousand four hundred and twenty-four. Well, we'll be back to look at ten cents earnings, which uh, didn't do so well. That's right after this. Tencent has reported uh, third quarter profits that missed analyst estimates after the Chinese internet company's revenue gained at its slowest pace since 2007 and development as well as staff costs increased. Its net income rose 46% to 5.66 billion yuan, that's 923 million US dollars, and profits trailed the 6.1 billion yuan average of analysts' estimates. We're joined now by Ernie Diaz, who is the director of marketing at web presence in China. Good morning, Ernie. Good morning. So, Ernie, Tencent uh, didn't do so well, uh, even though it said it's seeking to capture consu- the consumer shift to mobile devices and improve the quality of its games. Its mobile gaming income actually dropped in the third quarter. Can you uh, help explain why? Um, I, don't, I don't think that um, that is indicative of any kind of uh, long-term weakness. You know, there, there's still growth up. Uh, because it's missing analyst uh, estimates, I believe that the numbers are still healthy, considering uh, all the investing and work they're doing in uh, non-revenue-generating areas, such as they're consolidating their app platform and um, also their, their, their banking efforts. And other efforts, I think that um, in context of uh, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, they're still the leaders in the gaming and entertainment. Now, what about WeChat? Um, definitely Tencent has spent less money on advertising on this particular messaging app, uh, you know, WeChat, because of a sluggish adoption in the Western markets. But the trouble is, how can we accurately measure, um, you know, the growth of, you know, something like WeChat when Tencent doesn't actually provide figures for individual markets, unlike, say, Facebook, you know, does for, um, you know, its, its own chat system, you know, in various countries or or WhatsApp? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, if you're looking at WeChat's growth overseas, you can't 
can't really measure that. But if you want to look at macro in China, I mean, from a macro perspective, Tencent is on top of its game. Um, WeChat, you know, you're just seeing the beginning of monetization through WeChat. And, uh, you know, they still have QQ, um, at which there's considerable overlap. So um, the, the main, uh, the only weak point is uh, WeChat's uh, continued investment in e-commerce. That's where revenues really dropped. Right, but um, in terms of their uh, consolidating the market and having more people in monetization to reach out, you're just seeing the beginning of that. All in all, um, Tencent is doing a very good job of uh, riding this, uh, the, the biggest market force of the 21st century, which is China's online revolution. So because it missed uh, analyst estimates and because gaming dropped a bit, I don't think that um, bodes ill necessarily for the uh, mid to long term. And, and why the big big drop in e-commerce transactions? Is that because it, it's shifting its business to JD.com and, and using that as its platform to try and rival Alibaba? Exactly, exactly. I mean, Alibaba. If, if you want to look, at, if you put things in uh, the, the, the helpful perspective of BAT, you know, Alibaba is consolidating its position for e-commerce, and Tencent is trying to con, um, is trying to compete in this kind of centralized e-commerce. And it was telling that during the conference call. Last night, I believe it was um, Martin Lau who said, uh, you know, in terms of centralized, we're not going to give out any information about how JD's uh, merger with WeChat is doing. But when it comes to decentralized e-commerce, such as, uh, you know, online retailers on WeChat making connections with individual buyers, he said, that's encouraging. You know, so obviously JD is not encouraging for them. Um, and this is going to show that, you know, Alibaba has centralized e-commerce and Tencent is going to have to um, focus on uh, online to offline, which is very, very, has a lot of uh, potential. And oh. Tencent's in a good position to capitalize on that, with WeChat or without it. It is indeed. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ernie Diaz. He is the director of marketing at Web Presence in China. And Peter, you know, one of the things that investors are certainly looking forward to, as we all know, is the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect. Yes. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why they're even more excited is because uh, Shanghai investors will have access to companies like Tencent. Yes. And this this will be great when when Hong Kong uh, Shanghai Connect starts on Monday. It'll be very interesting to see what the appetite is for you know Chinese investors have for companies like. Like, uh, like Tencent. Lou, watching and waiting. All right, we'll be back to talk more about early stage investments and whether they are an asset class that is right after this. The 2015 Village Representative Election and Kaifeng Representative Election will be held next January. If you meet the eligibility requirements and wish to stand as a candidate in the election, you must submit your nomination form in person from November 14th to 27th this year. For inquiries, please call 2152-1521 or visit the dedicated website. All eligible men and women are welcome to stand in the election. The time is now 8.21 a.m. 
and investing in early stage capital. Could this be considered an asset class? Well, Thai Hong Kong has a, a panel discussion dedicated to this topic, this very topic, at its Thai Investment Forum scheduled for tomorrow. Joining us now to preview this are Titus Mikalski, who is the managing director of Fresco Capital, and Ian Reed, who is the president of Thai HK. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Renita. And welcome to Money for Nothing. So investing in early stage capital, Titus, can you actually help us define what is meant by early stage capital? Sure. So these are companies that are just starting out. And so this is not um, in the public stock market. These are companies building businesses. Typically, they have some kind of software element because that's the most scalable. And so just like Tencent started out with angel investors, you know, the, the future Tencent comes from these kinds of companies. So when you say they have some kind of software element, are, are investors specifically looking at tech companies? I mean, this is all we ever hear about. On one hand, it's very good. But are there no other kinds of startups out there? Right. So before, technology used to be separate from the rest of the world, but now it's really impacting everything, right? Whether it's um, things that we have as consumers with our mobile phones or technology enterprises. You know, we just recently invested in a company in the waste management industry in the U.S., right? So when you have the waste management industry adopting technology, you know that it's affecting everything. And, and what sort of challenges do you have as an investor um, by, by jumping in at such an early stage compared to people who may come in later? I should imagine that, you know, that there's a lot of disclosure issues, valuation issues, that specific challenges that, that you face here. There, there, it's very different. So it's not as if you're investing in big companies that are just smaller. You're absolutely right that there are different challenges. So a lot of the times it's making sure the product works making sure you can get out there and sell it. So these are really fundamental basic issues. And so a lot of that comes down to investing in the best teams. So anyone who's investing in this early stage really needs to focus on identifying the best teams first. So Ian, you've got uh, you know a whole day's event tomorrow, the Thai Investment Forum. And is this specifically dedicated to um, early stage investments and introducing investors to these companies out there? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, in fact, this is our second investors forum. We had our first one last year. Um, we think that uh, the, we think that startups in Hong Kong is a very exciting thing. Uh, we think there's a lot of capital in Hong Kong, but very little of it goes towards early stage companies. So, the purpose of the event is to help people understand the best ways uh, of doing that, the, uh, the, the the ways of not losing your money, because it's very often about not losing your money. Um, we've got people like. Peters will be there uh, sharing some of his experiences. Uh, our conclusion from last year was that actually Hong Kong has a lot of strengths. So we're very strong in, in financial markets. We're very strong in manufacturing. And it's actually the application of technology to those industries where Hong Kong can become a global leader. Now, you raise several very interesting points, one of which um, you say there is a lot of capital in Hong Kong. And, and I, I think we all know yeah. that. But the question is, is all of this capital clustered with wealthy folks or can regular, maybe, you know, not so wealthy folks also have an opportunity to invest in these companies? Uh, I mean, obviously, anyone can invest in these companies. Um, I think people, we recommend that you should never invest more than 10% of your net worth in startups because this is a highly risky uh, investment. However, when it comes off, it can be incredibly lucrative and also quite 
fun. It's fun investing in startups. Can you give us some examples? Um, so when so when you invest in startups, you're not just investing your money, you're investing your time and your experience and, and really trying to help these guys succeed. Once you put your money in, it's now in your interest to make it worth 10, 50 times more than, than it was when you put it in. So it's a very active investment. Very active. And I think, you know, Titus will agree with me that uh, he's, he takes a very, very hands-on approach. And that is the, the key to success. Peter, how does this compare to investing in stocks? Well, very different. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about, as you said, you know, companies that are at the very early stages of their formation. But this is where, you know, there's huge opportunities to, you know, to, to make very, very good returns if you get it right and if you pick the right companies and, you know, have a diversified portfolio. But I'm wondering, we're, we're seeing a lot of assets, RMB-denominated assets, build up here in Hong Kong, and particularly now that the 20,000 limit is, is going to be uh, removed. Is this an opportunity? for, you know, in uh, mainland Chinese investors who, you know, will have a lot of RMB here in Hong Kong. Does, does this provide opportunities for them? And are you looking for that type of money as well? So um, I, I'm talking from a sort of Thai Hong Kong perspective. In fact, our mission is to engage with, with, with the mainland because um, we believe that there's a lot of exciting opportunities there. Mm-hmm. Um, where Hong Kong comes into that is we are the, the gateway to the world for, for the mainland. So um, we're seeing a lot of uh, exciting entrepreneurs coming and starting businesses here, but really uh, looking from a global mindset. Um, and Hong Kong people do have a very global mindset, so they can add a lot of value in that respect. So, Titus, uh, tell us specifically about the operational aspect of this. Okay, we know you have to be very hands-on, as Ian has said. Um, give us an example of how you have selected, you know, for your own portfolio, these top companies and, you know, whether things worked or they didn't work or they're still on their way to maybe working? Yeah, they're working. Uh, we're pretty happy with the, with the results. So, um, one one local company that we've invested in, Insight Robotics, they protect critical infrastructure and resources. So, one of the resources being forests. And um, so, what we've helped them with is hiring. Right, bringing on talent is always a challenge for new companies. Uh, fortunately, because of their mission, where you know their mission is saving the world bit by bit, grid by grid plus just the, the quality of the team and how the company's progressed, they're able to attract the talent, but we're helping them find the right candidates to scale up. So um, helping t- companies build up the talent is, is something that is really important. And so when we talk about being hands-on, it's not necessarily me going into the factory and building the product myself. It's about helping them find the right people for the right skills. Okay, fantastic. All right, just in a few words, Ian, if you could give us more details about the event tomorrow and how we can find out about that. Yeah, so it's, uh, so it's an all-day event. Um, it'll be in the HSBC main building. Um, you do have to register in advance. Uh, I think the registration is open until 3 o'clock today. So if you go to hk.tie.org, click on uh, the events tab, um, you can register there. So I think we have still a couple of spots left, but it's pretty tight. A couple of spots left. Peter, are we going? Um, I would like to go. Yeah, yeah sounds think, very I interesting. Think, I think we yeah. have to sort of seize think, that opportunity. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Titus Mikalski, who is the managing director of Fresco Capital, and Ian Reid, the president of Thai HK. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 17,136. Australia's ASX down half a percent to 5,417. The US dollar to the yen is now 115. One uh, pound sterling buys you. 12.23 Hong Kong dollars and one euro is valued at 1.24 US dollars. Brent crude oil down to $80.38 and gold is at $1,159.40 per ounce. 
Peter, any parting thoughts for the day? Well, thing to watch out for next week is um, Hong Kong Shanghai Connect. Very exciting launch on um, on Monday. We'll be interested to see, you know, if those quotas are used up very quickly, and then how um, the, the the process deals with that. And also, you know, we've still got some very strong trends. Oil continues to fall. The dollar continues to rise. Will that continue next week? We shall find out. We shall find out, and we shall investigate. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as co-host. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, and I'm Renita Malhotrahora, bringing. Uh, close to money for nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy, one or two rain patches at first, and appreciably cooler in the morning with a maximum temperature of around 21 degrees during the day. Currently, the temperature is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 83%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. United States Republicans say the climate deal between the U.S. and China requires nothing of the Chinese for 16 years. Radio Australia's Jane Cowan reports from Washington. Returning to Capitol Hill for the first day of the lame duck session of Congress following the midterm elections, the incoming leader of the new Republican majority in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, took aim at the climate deal. As I read the, uh, the agreement, requires the Chinese to do nothing at all for 16 years. Uh, while these uh, carbon emission regulations are creating havoc in my state and other states around the country. He didn't say, though, what actions Republicans will take regarding the carbon emissions agreement. Scientists at the European Space Agency are facing an anxious wait to verify that the probe they landed on a comet more than half a billion kilometres away has stayed in place. The Philae probe is the first ever to land on a comet that it's been chasing for more than a decade. Philae's instruments are already sending data back to Earth. But as the BBC's Rebecca Morell reports, an anchoring mechanism has malfunctioned. After a jubilant celebration earlier in the day, the fate of the Rosetta mission is starting to look more uncertain. The European Space Agency says that while the lander, known as Philae, definitely 